From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Happy Friday and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony and with you on this Friday afternoon. Today on the program, a woman in the UK who was being investigated for silently praying in a place where silent prayer was not allowed has had the charges against her dropped. Is it good news that the charges were dropped or bad news that they were brought at all? We'll talk about that today. Also, the state of Arkansas is in court defending legislation that protects children from surgical and chemical mutilation. And other states are now running to support the effort. We'll talk to the attorney general from Missouri about why he's coming to the aid of Arkansas. Also, progressive Michigan governor Gretchen Whitmer has taken the bold step of banning therapy that, for all intents and purposes, isn't even happening. So what is she up to? We'll talk about that story as well. But our headlines for the day. The budget stalemate on Capitol Hill continues as the possibility of a government shutdown grows increasingly likely with the September 30th deadline approaching. Will a compromise emerge? Does this present the opportunity for conservatives to reset the way things are done on the Hill? Joining me now to discuss it is Congressman Michael Cloud. He serves on the House Appropriations Committee, and he also represents the 27th Congressional District of Texas. Congressman Cloud, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, thank you. Good to be with you today. Well, give us the latest on the budget negotiations. Well, right now, the Rules Committee is meeting as we speak, and uh, the the latest plan is we're going to try to pass a rule that would uh, allow four bills to come to the floor, uh, kind of in a first tranche. That would be uh, the DOD, Homeland Security, State and Foreign Ops, and and the Ag Bill. Uh, And then as we pass those, we can probably hopefully build some momentum toward uh, passing the rest of them. So this is what we committed to do in January when we said we're not going to do the normal thing of passing a CR, pass another CR, kick it down the can so you get Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve, and then pass a massive bloated Christmas tree omnibus spending bill. So uh, we're forcing the issue on making sure we follow an approach process uh, where we actually vote on uh, individual spending bills. and, And that's what you see happening right now. And that's an approach that I think a lot of uh, America is sympathetic with. Do you see momentum for that approach in the Republican caucus? I, I do. And, and, you know, there can be points of frustration, obviously, when I mean, what, what's happening right now in Congress is we're rewriting the muscle memory. So it's been a long time since Congress even attempted to try to act properly uh, and to act the way it was designed to act. And so it had become such a habit and a norm of doing what I just described, you know, kicking the can down the road, passing an omnibus bill, passing bills that no one reads and and all of these sorts of things. And so, you know, we said we said we're going to do this differently in this term. We're going to be able to read bills in advance, which actually makes things difficult because then people read them and they, you know, have concerns or little tweaks they want to make. But this is how Congress is supposed to work. It's supposed to be a deliberative body. You're supposed to actually evaluate what you're what you're voting on before it comes to the yeah. floor. And so it makes it more difficult, but it's a better will be a better nation because of it. And of course, it is a deliberative body and it's supposed to be a deliberative process, but we do have a deadline of September 30th. Can sure. that deliberation take place in time to avoid a government shutdown? Well, we certainly do have a tight timeline, and that's yet to be seen. Uh, I, you know, I wish we could have condensed the calendar. We, we did have Biden, you know, for the first five months saying we're not going to negotiate on a debt ceiling and those kind of things. And then there's probably some things we could have done internally in the House to speed things up. I wish we were a little further along in the process, but but we are where we are. We're trying to do it, it, it the right way. We're passing these approach bills and uh whether we make it by the 30th, I don't know, but we'll, we'll be working, uh, continue to work and get them done as quickly as we can. 
Now, you've talked a lot about the process there and kind of changing the muscle memory of Washington, D.C., but substantively, there are some spending issues in Washington, D.C. The U.S. is now $33 trillion in debt. We've added $1 trillion since June. Back in the second Bush administration, it was less than $4 trillion. So almost $30 trillion in about 20 years. Is that an issue that Congress is really confronting and taking seriously and hopefully will be addressed in this uh, new budget? Sure. And that's part of what's been a, whole, a part of this whole process. You know, we we set a goal of getting back to pre-COVID spending, you know, to leave our military where it's at because we need it to be there, take care of our vets. Uh, but, but, you know, our government, our federal government's grown about 30 to 40 percent in the last two to three years. That's astronomical. And, and so we're working to get as close as we can to getting back to pre-COVID sized government. Uh, you know, the we, we're seeing massive inflation. Families are having to deal with it. And, and you hear it and it almost sounds trite and cliche, but we continually ask the American family to budget, to watch their 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 P's and Q's and, you know, make sure that they're spending wisely. Uh, and it's far past time for the, for the government to do that as well. And so we're giving a, a good, honest effort at doing that. A number of members are, we're trying to get the most, uh, most conservative figures while giving uh, giving the people uh, a government that works efficiently. Now, one of the budget-related issues is the border. The border chaos and migrant crisis continues. September is on pace to be a record month for border crossings. Now, you've said that the border crisis is by design. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it's it. it you can tell if you just look at all the data. It, Biden Biden and his administration inherited a secure border. All they would have had to do was nothing. Yet they continue to put in policies in place that have that have created this chaos. Uh, and when they saw they weren't working, they just pretended like it didn't exist. And yesterday's press conference was like a pure example of that. I, I was I was impressed by the reporter who asked how many is enough because I think that was maybe the most honest question that I've heard regarding this because uh, lately the you know the press kind of act still kind of acted with the pretending as if the the Biden administration was trying to secure the border when we actually know that they are trying and aiding and abetting cartels and migrating people into our country and using taxpayer dollars to do it. Uh, and so I thought that was kind of refreshing in a sense. That was one of the most honest questions we've seen asked in quite a bit. Well, if this is by design, as you say, that implies they want this to happen. What does the administration stand to gain? I, you know, you could speculate on what their many objectives are, but I can tell you this, their goals for the United States are not the same that most people have. And, and so you can look at a number of different policy objectives where they're, in a sense, working to bring the U.S. down a notch because of their worldview, as opposed to letting America continue to lead and be strong, uh, to be strong here at home and strong on the world stage, to be that shining city on a hill. Uh, they just really have a different worldview. And so you're seeing that in policy after policy policy after policy. And, you know, I was in a, a event in my district last week and we were talking about the border and a lady came up to me after the event. She said, I'm sorry I had to leave when you mentioned the border because I was one of those kids. Uh, I was trafficked by the cartels at age three and by seven years old, they were selling her out uh, to to all the unspeakable atrocities at seven years old. And so you know, the Biden administration just passed a record for the most crossings in a month. And but each of those numbers isn't just a number on a spreadsheet. It's a life like that that's being affected. Now, you said that all the Biden administration had to do was nothing. But uh, both President Biden and White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre have implied that the problem of the border is really a Republican problem. Uh, here's President Biden. Let's <laughs> play clip two. Mega Republican in Congress and my predecessor spent four years gutting the immigration system under my predecessor. They continue to undermine our border security today, blocking bipartisan reform. And now here's Karine Jean-Pierre. As we know, and you've heard us say this many times before, we are dealing with a broken system. And no action was taken from Congress. And so what the president was able to do, he imposed consequences uh, for those who do not have the legal uh, basis to remain. And he has removed more than 250,000 individuals. This administration has done so uh, since May 12th. Congressman Cloud, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think the American people can see straight through that. Uh, the fact is, is that 
President Trump had the same walls to operate under as we have today, uh, and still he was able to do a, a much better job. Now, I'm all for improving legislation right now. We're working to get H.R. 2 attached to any sort of spending measure that would go over to the Senate because we must secure our border. We're trying to close any sort of loophole. But right now we have an administration that's looking for every loophole to distort the true intentionality of, of securing our border. Uh, they are They are aiding and abetting cartels. I can't say it any clearer. Uh, you know, they're, they're profiting billions and billions of dollars uh, off of this. They can create, create an entire new industry, both uh, Central South America and across the globe with the cartels, but then even within the United States of transporting illegal migrants. And, uh, you know, I got a fat down on the airplane today and I was thinking, I couldn't help but think while I was getting that, like, if I was coming into this country illegally, I would not be subject to this sort of uh, scrutiny. And, and, and we have a legal process. My wife's actually a legal immigrant. I was at her uh, her citizenship ceremony. There's a right way to do this, and we certainly welcome that. We're a welcoming country, but we've got to secure our border. Now, on a related note, the UN and World Health Organization tried to rubber stamp a pandemic declaration this week that includes plans for censoring health, quote unquote, misinformation, and calling for universal access to abortion. Now, 11 countries formally objected, and despite UN spin, this was a major setback for the globalists. But the Biden administration has shown an eagerness to cede U.S. power to unelected international bureaucrats. We saw in New Mexico what happened when government leaders use public health powers to unilaterally call the shots. Do we really want to see that sort of power going to bodies like the World Health Organization that previously botched the pandemic response? Well, and that's exactly right. And, and you're right. This is connected. It's it's the same uh, worldview operating that's leaving us with open borders is operating here where they're willing to cede U.S. sovereignty to a global world power. Uh, and the Constitution doesn't leave room for that. The Constitution was actually given to us because they knew power likes to coalesce. Uh, and so we were given a Constitution that would ensure that power stays distributed because that's what's best for the people. Uh, and so the irony of this is, of course, we had the WHO who did a horrible job during the pandemic, and now their solution to having done a horrible job during the pandemic is, oh, if only we had more power, we could have done a better job. And, you know, that's just the, the solution of big government kind of people. It's always a, uh, I, we can fix the crisis we created if we uh, had more power to create more, more crisis and to control the, the crisis. That's not the way to go here. And the way the Biden administration is going about this is with every other country, it's called a treaty, but for the United States, we're not going to call it a treaty because we know we'd have to go through the Senate on that and actually get votes on it. So he's trying to do an end around Congress. This is a, an unlawful approach, uh, and it's really the wrong thing to do, and the Constitution has no room for it. Congressman Cloud, I know that you have to go to a, another engagement, but we appreciate your time today and your uh, diligence on all these issues. Thanks so much. God bless you. God bless you. Now, the U.S. historically contributes more than any other country to the World Health Organization. And in 2022, Congress sent $434 million in American taxpayer funds to the WHO, despite their aggressive push to usurp national sovereignty and promote abortion and gender ideology. And as you just heard there, there is increasing threats from the World Health Organization to try to seize power from the democratic process here in the United States. And Congress is considering legislative proposals to untangle the U.S., from subsidizing the WHO's massive overreach, but none are more important than the annual appropriations process by which Congress decides how to spend American tax dollars. Tell your U.S. senators and representatives to commit to defunding the World Health Organization. Text WHO to 67742. That's WHO to 67742. Coming up, after a six-month investigation, a thought crimes charge has been dropped. We'll talk about it when we come back. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. 
Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be disciples their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. We have some good news to report here on Washington Watch as we head into the weekend. After a six-month investigation, police in West Midlands in the UK have dropped charges against Isabel Von Spruce for the crime of praying silently. Von Spruce was arrested last March for praying in a buffer zone surrounding an abortion facility where a, quote, public spaces protection order banning prayer and other activities was established by local authorities. Now, here's a video of the incident from last December. Is, is you standing here part of the protest? No. I'm not are you, protesting. Are you, are you praying? I might be praying in my head. Um, so I'll ask you once more, will you voluntarily come with us now to the police station for me to ask you some questions about today and other days where there are allegations that you've broken public spaces protection? Uh, if I've got a choice, then no. Okay, well then you're under arrest. Yes, that officer asked her if she was praying in her head. Joining me now to discuss this is Lois McClatchy. She's a senior legal communications officer with ADF International, the organization that has supported Isabel's legal defense. Lois, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, and thank you for covering this important story. Well, thank you for staying up so late to, to bring it to us. Was this, in fact, a thought crime investigation? <laughs> Well, it certainly seems so. In the uh, in the moment that she was arrested the second time, Isabel uh, was at, was told, "You're praying. That is the offense. Silent praying." She confirmed, and they said, "Yes, you are praying, and that is the offense." And therefore, she was arrested uh, twice uh, for thinking in her head uh, prayerful thoughts towards God about abortion. 
So, yeah, you might think this comes from eight, 1984, yeah. but no, it's, it's England in 2023. Yeah. Well, we do have thoughts of 1984, to be sure. Now, <laughs> here on this side of the pond, uh, we know that UK does not have a First Amendment, and we value our First Amendment, at least we think we do, but we realize the law is not the same everywhere else. Does that just mean that the law in the UK allows the government to punish people for speaking or thinking <laughs> things that they don't like? No, it doesn't. So under international human rights law, freedom of thoughts and freedom of speech are robustly protected. And thankfully, you know, in this story, freedom of speech and freedom of thought did win the day. And, and the right conclusion was reached by police officers after a grueling six-month investigation, which should never have happened. But at least we had a good result in this case. Now, at EDF UK, we are uh, actually defending uh, more than one person for this thought crime of praying outside an abortion facility. And we want this uh, this to end. Uh, so we were hoping and uh, for the government to release guidance that makes very much you know clear to the police that freedom of thought is protected in the UK. There is no crime such as silent prayer. Uh, so we're hoping that the government will clarify that as soon as possible. Yeah. It's it's amazing that you have to say that there is no crime such as silent prayer, as if such a thing could be criminalized. But when these charges were dropped, did the authorities make a statement? Was there a justification for dropping the charges? Did they do it silently? Did they, you know, apologize? Uh, there was an apology given for the length of time that it took to reach them to get to this conclusion. They took six months uh, and they had initially imposed quite restrictive bail conditions on Isabel. Uh, they were later dropped, but as I said, six months is a very long time to be waiting to hear about whether you're going to face trial. Bear in mind that Isabel has faced trial before for the same crime and found innocent uh, when she was simply praying in her head the first time outside that abortion facility. So we knew from the courts that this was not a crime. The police had to then take six months to decide again that this was not a crime. So they did apologize for the length of delay, uh, but we have to do much more to ensure this doesn't happen again. And that's why we really need the clarity and the guidance from the government on this. Yeah, and is there any indication of what you have to do for six months? I mean, because the, the facts <laughs> seem fairly clear. We've seen the video. We understand it seems to be agreement about what they were concerned about. Why does it take six months for them to say this is ridiculous? It is bizarre. You're absolutely right. Now, one of the problems is that with the legislation bringing in these buffer zones, in Isabel's case, in the local legislation and in, or in the UK's case, this is being rolled out across the country. The legislation is very um, vague. So it will ban things such as influence. Um, now, what does influence mean outside an abortion facility? Well, some people would say that means harassment and it bans anyone from committing violence or harassment outside a clinic. And we would say, well, that's great. Nobody wants to see anybody act right. with violence or harassment towards anyone. Uh, but with using words like influence, what it means in reality is that things are banned but shouldn't be banned. That means, you know, handing out uh, charitable leaflets about support available to women who might want it on this very, you know, dark day of their lives where they might be considering all of their options. They might want to hear about support services available. And it captures things like prayer, and in this case, even silent prayer. So it just shows how much we need clarity in the law. Now, this is obviously a good result, but oftentimes when you're dealing with the government, the process is the punishment, even if you are ultimately vindicated. Is there any concern that uh, what she's had to go through here is going to discourage people from having public expressions of faith? Absolutely. Yeah, the process can often be the punishment and that can um, deter people. We see this with hate speech laws and other kind of restrictions on speech that are spreading across Europe that uh, if one person can be dragged through the courts, it often makes people think, well, I don't want to have to go through that. That seems like a lot of hassle, even if the end result is OK. So it will stop people uh, from speaking about things that they want to speak about. And even in this case, thinking, if you can imagine it, about what they want to think about. So it does have a freezing, chilling effect on freedom in society. Uh, so, yeah, it's really important that we have these cases um, in the media publicized. So I'm very yeah. thankful that you're covering us on your show tonight because we need to show people that, that there is yeah. success when we challenge these laws and that freedom of thought and freedom of speech are protected. Well, in about 30 seconds, how did Isabel respond when she got the news that the charges are being dropped? 
Isabel, she's delighted to have this result. Obviously, she's great, grateful to not have to be prosecuted a second time for the thoughts she's held in her head. And she's thankful to be able to go back out and pray uh, for women who are considering this uh, difficult decision. Uh, but she too has concerns about people who are looking on and who themselves would be censoring their own thoughts as a result of this. So she's very keen uh, that people know that freedom of thought and freedom of speech are protected in human rights law. And that's not something that any authority can take away. The government does not have the right to tell you what to think or not to think. Lois McClatchy, ADF International, thanks so much for your time and the great news. Thank you so much. We will continue to cover that, boy. You think it's bad here in the U.S. on religious freedom. It's much worse in other places, and of course, it's much worse for people than it is even there in U.K., but these are very concerning stories for those of us who care about freedom. Now, coming up, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins me to discuss his efforts to help the state of Arkansas with their SAFE Act to protect children from experimental gender procedures following his legal victory in Missouri. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org worldview. Again, go to frc.org worldview. Going. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. My pleasure to be with you. Yesterday, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey led a multi-state coalition in filing an amicus brief supporting Arkansas's law banning experimental and permanent gender procedures for minors. A panel of judges on the Eighth Circuit previously struck down this law. But after a similar law was successfully defended in Missouri, the state attorneys general now requested a full court hearing. Are we going to a guest? Excuse me. Okay. We are uh, having some issue with that story, so we will return to that. Um, Yesterday... Now we are going to go to uh, Joshua Arnold, and I think uh, he. we have a story about some book bans. Joshua, are you with me? Hi, Joseph. Happy to be here. Hey, Joshua. Good, good to see you. Now, the left has been accusing conservatives of banning books in school libraries, conveniently leaving out the fact that these books are actually really pornographic and age-inappropriate material that are pulled from the shelves. Well... It turns out that if anybody is banning books, it might be our friends on the left. They made clear in a school up in Canada that underwent an equitable curation cycle for books in its library. Uh, Tell us a bit more about that. That's right. So this happened in a school district outside of Toronto. 
um, several uh, high schools in the district essentially had most of their books removed. Um, students came back from the summer break and found empty shelves. One student estimated about 50 percent of books um, were gone. And what essentially happened is the libraries, um, the librarians threw out every book uh, published before 2008. Did they say why? There were uh, like a, a chain of events that led up to this. Uh, essentially, it began when the education minister for the Canadian province of Ottawa um, told the, the school district that it had to be woker. And so they created this equitable curation cycle um, that had certain requirements where they had to remove books that weren't inclusive and didn't fit with the, the curriculum. And it seems the librarians misinterpreted it in a way, but really tipped the hand that this is, this is the end goal of where Marxist education takes you is any book that doesn't fit with whatever we say is okay now gets thrown out. Now, you say they cleared off every book prior to 2008. Now, is that a coincidence? Was there something magical about 2008, or did their evaluation of this literature uh, conclude that nothing previous to 2008 was uh, woke enough for today? So the, the guidance told the librarians to evaluate every book published prior to 2008 according to certain criteria. And it seems like perhaps the librarians um, misinterpreted their guidance and just threw out every book prior to 2008. Um, but the the multi-step process that they were going to go through included, for example, um, an anti-racist audit and an audit to make sure that their books were representative of the students in their school. Um, and so many of those books that might have seemed inoffensive might have been thrown out anyways. Now, it's interesting when you, you use the term an anti-racist audit there, and that, of course, is a, is a buzzword on the left, anti-racism. What that makes me think is not only did they want, they, they don't just want books to teach true things that might be helpful, but they actually need to be advocacy because anti-racism on the left is, is the act of opposing things that they want you to oppose. So were they, are they now evaluating literature to make sure that the literature is making the kinds of political statements that they want to be made? I, I think they are evaluating literature with an anti-racist audit. It's hard for that to mean anything else. And in multiple places, the, the directive also told them um, to make sure that the books on the library shelves uh, corresponded with the education goals of the schools. Now we know that there are parents all across Canada rising up and, and saying enough is enough with this woke education. So we know that Canadian schools are at least as woke as American schools and what they're teaching children. Um, so we know that their education goals have to be pretty far out there, um, which would take away, you know, a lot of the classics, yeah. Homer and Shakespeare. That, that doesn't fit with a woke agenda. Well, it takes out basically all literature. And again, I think you, you noted that everything prior to 2008 has been essentially erased from the school shelves. And, and that kind of makes sense uh, because anti-racism is really a new concept as they understand it. So, of course, Shakespeare was not writing things that were anti-racist because he didn't even understand what the concept was. That does seem dangerous. You know, in the last segment, we went to the UK and talked about the thought crime prosecution that was taking place, though it thankfully dropped. But the UK's different understanding of free speech that than we have here in the United States. Now our friends to the north in Canada are giving us an understanding of where this kind of um, literature concern, literature censorship, the, the curriculum concerns that we have here in the United States about pornographic material are fair, but what we see here in Canada is what could be coming is they're going to demand, unless parents and, and citizens uh, hold the line, they're going to demand that the literature is affirmatively indoctrinating, as if that wasn't happening enough. Right, and it's coming here too. Basically what Canada did is put wokeism into the library system. Now, libraries weed all the time. They get rid of damaged books or moldy books or books that aren't being checked out. Um, but this is inserting wokeism into that library system. And with an American Library Association president who is a self-professed Marxist lesbian, it can easily, you can easily see how that, apart from the political system, will make it away, its way into American libraries. Joshua Arnold, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Now, coming up next, a couple stories 
legislation in Michigan that actually is similar to the other that we've talked about, and an interesting study about what America thinks about the direction of the family. We'll talk about it in our Worldview segment when we come back. Stay with us. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. Watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org. Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free, factual news stories, and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged. Be in the know. And stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. FRC, celebrating 40 years with Michelle Bachman. I'm so grateful for the involvement that I've been blessed to be a part of really for decades now with the Family Research Council. And it's a highly credible organization, and it's really just a tremendous honor to advance the kingdom of God through this organization. And that was former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, currently the board chair of the Family Research Council, helping us as we continue celebrating our 40th anniversary. We are so thankful to Congresswoman Bachman and all of you for helping make 40 years of defending faith, family, and freedom possible. We couldn't do it without you, and of course there wouldn't be any reason to. Our next story, earlier this year, when Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed legislation that banned so-called conversion therapy. She said it was for the sake of children. But is there evidence of a rampant epidemic of counselors violating professional regulations and criminal law to abuse their patients? Well, the answer to that is no. So why does this legislation exist? Joining me now to discuss it is David Clausen. He's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council. David, welcome. Great to be back with you, Joseph. Good to see you. Well, good to see you. You are not in your normal D.C. confines. Uh, Before we get into the conversation, tell us a bit about uh, what you're doing. 
Yeah, that's right. So I'm coming to you from Atlanta right now. So FRC is one of the uh, sponsors and exhibitors at uh, what's known as G3 Ministries. Uh, so it's a conference that's attracted about 8,000 uh, pastors and church leaders uh, to hear from well-known preachers and pastors, uh, really to get equipped uh, for ministry and to be faithful uh, in their local ministry context. And so it's just been a joy, Joseph. I'm here. Uh, one of the main speakers is our colleague, Owen Strand, uh, who's given two major talks uh, on topics like Christian nationalism and church-state relations. And so it, it's been good to get out of uh, D.C. for a little bit uh, to just think biblically about the different issues we're dealing with in the public square and to let people know that FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview is trying to uh, provide resources to Christian parents and pastors and churches uh, to just come alongside uh, these groups to think biblically about all the issues we're dealing with. Well, David, it is Friday afternoon and you are in Atlanta, so I know you're smart enough to know. Do not get in a car and try to go anywhere, so you are much safer uh, conferencing. But let's get to our story today. Talked about this ban in Michigan about over-conversion therapy. Now, let's begin by divining terms. Now, in the Orwellian language of the left, the definition of conversion therapy is elastic enough to include trying to stop a child from mutilating his or her own body. But affirming care is when those healthy body parts are mutilated. Now, do you think that winning the language war and framing the issue in the way that the left wants to may be the actual purpose of the legislation? Well, I think so, Joseph, and I think uh, you had a piece in World Opinions where you, you talked about this, I, thought, I think, very helpfully, and I know that piece is on the FRC Worldview site. Um, but I, I absolutely agree with you that uh, what Gretchen Whitmer and other blue state governors and mayors are doing with these so-called bans on conversion therapy, uh, these, these are this type of legislation is actually not really even necessary. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. idea that you have these counselors or therapists uh, that are engaging in so-called reparative or, or uh, uh, this kind of conversion therapy, it's actually not happening. However, uh, this is an opportunity I think the left is seeing to co-opt the language to make it seem uh, like this is happening and uh, that anyone who holds a worldview that would dare even suggest uh, that these categories of sexual orientation and gender identity are problematic uh, categories, well, these are just views that shouldn't even be yeah. given uh, a proper hearing in the public square. And so it, what's problematic, especially, Joseph, is when this whole thing called conversion therapy, uh, it's it's intentionally not defined. I looked at the, the governor's press release, and, you know, it's intentionally not defined. And so often what this means is this even will include talk therapy or counseling. Yeah. And so we've even seen this in places like Indiana, that they'll put these bans in place uh, and they'll even say that if you are a Christian counselor or pastor, you can't talk about these issues. And we're that's usually usually has to be walked back. Uh, but I do think uh, the analysis you're giving, Joseph, is a very helpful one. Yeah. And and I want to let Governor uh, Whitmer kind of describe why she thinks this is necessary. She actually did take the social media uh, to describe why she thought this was helpful. Let's play clip six. Conversion therapy is an abusive process used to try and control children. It's anti-medicine, anti-choice, and it's just plain wrong. So I'm proud that we're finally banning conversion therapy in Michigan. And I want the LGBTQ plus community to know that I've got your back. We will continue taking action to make our state a place where anyone can build a brighter future. Now, there's some history here that I think is important because in some ways there's actually a lot of agreement between the right and the left uh, on this issue. Because the left, and I think Gretchen Whitmer, what she's referring to there, is there have been stories told about things like shock therapy and ice baths being provided to children in an attempt to make them, you know, change their desires. And the reality is across the board, across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum, it has been widely condemned. I don't know of anybody who says, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. We should do that to people, which just demonstrates that that's not actually happening. Um, furthermore, if it were happening, 
it may already be covered by by criminal abuse, child abuse laws, because there are criminal statutes that say you can't abuse children, thankfully, and everyone supports those. In addition, there are already, there are also uh, professional ethics and professional rules that if a counselor for any purpose tries to coerce a client to accomplish the therapist's goals rather than the client's goals, that's professional misconduct. You can report that conduct to the governing board of the profession and the therapist can lose their license. But significantly, in Governor Whitmer's press release about this, she pointed to no examples of this happening anywhere in Michigan, which is notable because if there were examples, you can be sure that she would talk about it incessantly because it fits the narrative. So to that point, again, this is worldview, but it's also politics, understanding how this stuff is done. What I think they want to happen through this legislation is to create the impression that abuse is happening when it isn't. Because when the governor goes out and makes this big scene, oh, we've passed this legislation to end this abuse, all that does is tell, well, of course we don't want children being abused. That must mean those mean fundamentalist Christians who don't think men can become women are abusing children. When there's no evidence that that's happening, but you've kind of now planted the seed. Is this a bit of when did you stop abusing your uh, wife? Well, I think so, Joseph, and I think what you just said is so key. If there was an example uh, that the left could point to, all of us would know those individuals by name. It would be on cable news uh, 24-7. And so let's just be clear from a worldview perspective. There were stories uh, you know, from the 70s and 80s uh, of people doing like electric shock therapy and aversion therapy and things like that. That's been widely discredited by everybody. No one thinks, like you said, that's a good idea. There is no ministry. Uh, there is no pastor. There is, there is no church that I know that thinks this is the answer for a child struggling or confused about gender dysphoria or sexual orientation. So let, let's be clear, this is not happening. But what Gretchen Whitmore and others are doing, they're able to poison the well and to be able to get this narrative going that you fundamental Christians who maybe disagree with uh, the categories of gender dysphoria or uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, you you know, it's not just a outdated backwards understanding, but it's uh, inherently subversive and dangerous. And so I think we need to realize this is exactly, this fits with the leftist narrative. This comes from a leftist worldview. And again, we need to, again, as Christians say, we stand for children and we stand for what is actually right for children. And we need to see through the politics here. And you, you hinted at something else that I think we should, we should highlight as well, is that while the conversation around these bills always has to do with abuse, and everybody believes that child abuse needs to stop, right? Bipartisan agreement around that point. But what this legislation ends up doing is it allows the government to censor and punish conversations that happen in a therapeutic context. So what they say is, don't abuse children. Oh, and if you tell a kid who experiences gender dysphoria that it's possible to become comfortable with the body that God gave him, that's conversion therapy. You can't do that. So what they're really trying to do is regulate conversations. A silly analogy that I think is actually useful, though, is if you pass legislation to say, let's stop wives from beating their husbands over the head with frying pans, we'd all say, yes, we need to stop uh, wives from beating their husbands over the head with frying pans. But then you look in the language and it says, it actually also tells wives that they can't tell their husbands to pick up their socks. And so... (laughs) That's a totally different thing, but that's kind of the game that's being played here is we want a headline that everybody agrees with in order to accomplish a purpose uh, that is actually quite problematic and uh, to the point of free speech that we we talked about earlier in the show. But David, I want to uh, switch topics with you uh, because uh, it's kind of related, but the Pew Research Center has recently published some results uh, regarding Americans' view on the family. Now, it turns out that more Americans are pessimistic about the institution of marriage and the family these days. Now, I'm going to throw that slide back up there if we can, because there's a lot of information. And for those who are viewing, they can kind of try to take this in a little bit. It says 40 percent of Americans are pessimistic about the direction of the family in America. Only 25 percent are optimistic. Why do you think that is? Yeah, this is so interesting, Joseph. Uh, you know, only forty percent are 
or excuse me, it's 40% that are pessimistic. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We know that the divorce rate in this country is extremely high, and not just in the general public, but also uh, in the church. I think we're seeing a crisis of fatherlessness in this country. So I do think that there's um, a lot of people in and outside the church that are inherently uh, pessimistic about uh, institutions uh, like marriage. And I, I don't think that's a good development, but again, we're seeing that, Joseph. I think this is this is ultimately the, the fruit of the undermining of the institution of marriage. Uh, first, you know, going all the way back to 1969 with the first no-fault divorce law, uh, just generation after generation, it seems, we have undermined marriage. We've undermined this institution. We've redefined uh, marriage, obviously, in the Obergefell decision in 2015. And so I think what we're seeing now, this uh, people not being sure about marriage, confused about marriage, uh, pessimistic about marriage, but this is the fruit of decades of where we've been undermining um, and delegitimizing the institution of marriage. And it is interesting as the progressives have kind of gotten their way uh, culturally in terms of how people view and understand the family and marriage, uh, Americans do not become more optimistic about what that apparently means. Because, of course, this is not a, primarily a political question. It's just what's your mood about how the family is doing? And in general, the mood is not positive. But the survey also asks people what they think about the specifics of the family. 49% of Americans said that fewer children being raised by two parents is negative, which is half of America thinks it's a problem that fewer children are being raised by two married parents. But there's another number here that I want to highlight. 39% of Americans think that fewer children being raised by two married parents is neither positive nor negative. You have that's almost 40% of Americans who think it's no big deal that fewer children are being raised by their mother and father. What do you attribute that to? Well, once again, Joseph, I, th I think key to this is that people are not understanding uh, the good things that a married mother and a father bring into that relationship. We saw this last year with the debate about the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, people not understanding uh, the, the the goods of marriage, the stability of marriage, that this is good for children. And you know, it's interesting that other cultures, even non-Christian cultures, have long understood this. But increasingly, you know, Carl Truman's book, I think, is really helpful, this, that we've elevated the self above all things. And so with this elevated view of the self, we're all of a sudden now not thinking marriage and a commitment and responsibility are important things. There's another part of this study showed that 71% of Americans said that having a career uh, was a key to a fulfilling life. 61% uh, said that having close friends was key to having a fulfilling life. Only 23% said that it was marriage uh, that was key to having a fulfilling yeah. life. And so I think when we've elevated the self, the uh, urges of adults and the desires of adults, uh, kind of putting me, myself, and I above uh, family and above marriage, these are the kinds of things you see. These are the fruit of the bad ideas we've been sowing now for decades related to marriage and family. And David, the partisan differences here are really interesting as well. The idea that fewer children being raised by two parents is a problem. 63% of Republicans think it's a problem. Only 37% of Democrats think it's a problem. Fewer people getting married. 52% of Republicans think that's a problem. Only 23% of Democrats think that's a problem. More couples living together without marriage. 44% of Republicans think that's a problem. 15% of Democrats do. People having fewer children in general. 37% of Republicans think that's a problem. 20% of, of Democrats do. It's very clear that the worldview divide between the right and the left, and it's imperfect, and it, you know, there, there's certainly overlap, and, and not everybody on the left is far away from everybody on the right, and there's, there's certainly a spectrum here. But it seems that progressivism causes people not just to feel differently about the family, but they value family different, they value marriage different, and they value children differently. And that gets to the worldview of what do we think the purpose of our life is. David? Sadly, we're out of time. There's so much more to dig into, but uh, we're going to have to do it another day. Enjoy the rest of your time in Atlanta, and thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you, Joseph. 
And thank you, friends, for being with us this evening. Hope you have a blessed Friday and weekend with your family. Uh, Do pray for our country. Pray for the family. And we look forward to being with you again on Monday. Tony will be back in the chair. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1 866 372 7234. That's 1 866 372 7234.